Distro hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee. I'm Dale. I live in northeast Ohio. And I'm Eric. I live in southwestern Florida. Welcome to Distro Hoppers Digest. We love checking distros out. New distros, new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked. We each have our preferences in complexity or desktop or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro or better understand one that has piqued your curiosity. The idea of this podcast is that we each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three to four weeks and use it as much as possible, perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all of our trials, tribulations, fixes, and what we like and what we don't. I tend to take on the more advanced distros and give them a go. Well, I tend to prefer looking at distros that would be kind to a new user, especially one who is hoping to move over from another operating system, such as Windows or Mac OS. We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro, and we will also mention what hardware we are using and might comment on how we think the hardware may affect the rating. Welcome to Distro Hopper's Digest, episode 47, recorded on October 19th, 2023. For this show, we decided to review Bodhi 7, Garuda Sway, and Manjaro 23, Uranus Cinnamon Edition. Monthly foibles, wherein we discuss what we did this month. I've had issues getting work or having to take time off. My glasses broke and I had to get a new exam and ordered new glasses. I got my flu shot and my new COVID shot. The COVID shot made me pretty sick with lots of lower abdominal pain for a few days, but I got better. I've been pulling back from doing a lot of things I'd like to do, including missing a couple of Mintcast episodes. I hope I'm back in better shape now. A phone upgrade to Android 14 made my Moto G Stylus 5G 2022 start glitching out frequently. I moved my SIM card back into my old Google Pixel 3a XL for a few days and then moved it back, and the glitches are much less frequent. I installed LMDE on my test machine and a week later installed it on my desktop, replacing KDE Neon. Everything went smoothly. I replaced Cinnamon with Mate on my desktop machine. And then the machine itself died. I booted up, did some stuff in Mint, did updates, booted to Bodhi, did updates, then rebooted to go look at LMDE, and the re machine refused to boot. The only things coming on are the light on the power button and the fan. I tried various things, many suggested by Dale, but early on decided I should go on eBay and purchase another one. I couldn't find a good price on an i7 machine, but I found an i5 complete with SSD and 16 gigs of RAM for just under $120. It's what I'm using now, and I'm happy with it. Dale? I finally got around to building two computer desks. This has been on my to-do list since moving in over a year ago. My cable management has been on hold due to wanting to attach power strips and uh, other items to the underside of my desk. The existing desks use composite wood, which is not great for putting screws into. I bought two benchtops at Menards. It's a local hardware store, home improvement center. They are red oak, around one and a half inches or four centimeters thick, 24 inches, 61 centimeters wide five feet, and about one and a half meters long. For the legs, my previous plan was to buy them from Pipe Decor, but they had some e-commerce issues, so I used Plan B, which was IKEA's single table legs. That was my choice until I saw that they had 
actual table frames. They use a sawhorse-style legs with a center support beam. I was pretty happy with their quality and the ease of construction. Instead of ordering them, I drove the one and a half hours to the Ikea on the north side of Columbus, Ohio. I've always wanted to visit one. I pass by it every time I go through Columbus when I'm working. It's like a combination of a Home Depot and a furniture store. They have like actual living rooms that somebody set up to make it look like it's lived in. And then they tell you where to buy the things in the store. It's really kind of clever. I moved my newest of the old computer desks into my bedroom. I also needed to move my cable modem and router to the other side of my office. I bought 50 or so feet of RG6 coax from Home Depot. I already had the F-type connectors and the compression tool to attach them. I like being able to make custom length cables, um, like my Ethernet cables and the coaxial cables. comes in handy. I'm looking forward to getting home to continue on the, with this project. And boy, has it been a project. I still have not seen the light at the end of the tunnel yet. <laughs> It got turned off due to budget cuts. Yeah. <laughs> or as a friend told me once, the light at the end of the tunnel is a train. <laughs> Since Mintcast is always asking for show ideas, I asked the team if they were interested in hearing my second GUI article, the history of the GUI. This was before I decided to make the two new computer desks, and I wanted to keep my commitment with them and not cancel at the you know, last moment. I intended to work on the show prep on Saturday afternoon that preceded the Sunday recording. That didn't happen due to a friend needing some urgent help, so I did what I could in the time permitted in the afternoon before the recording of episode 421. It was fun and went well mostly. I did have a cut-and-paste mistake in the show notes which took me by surprise. I was able to recover somewhat since I had recently reread the article in preparation for writing my third article. I was a little disappointed and wanted to do a better presentation, but yeah, so be it. In computer-related news, I've always wanted to try a tiling window manager again. Been on my mind for ever since I tried it. I have a heavy keyboard-centric workflow, so I think it'll work well for me. I had a good experience with i3 reviewing Regolith in episode 36 on the September of 2022. I had this idea of replacing XFWM4 and XFCE with i3, and XFWM4 is the window manager in XFCE. I saw that I wasn't the only person to think of this combination, which I wasn't surprised in the least. Matt from the LinuxCast YouTube channel has a detailed tutorial. He used Arch in his demonstration, but he had said you can adapt it to be used on other distros. And I believe he did have a link to a, a person that did a similar Ubuntu one, which could obviously be adapted to Debian and other flavors. I installed Debian 12 on my Delta Inspiron 13 to see how I would get along. This experiment will go well with my review of Garuda Sway. I decided to use my Ryzen 9 3900X desktop with my ultra-wide monitor for gaming. It will be moved to my other desk in the office. In its place will be a Lenovo ThinkCenter Tiny that Moss found for me on eBay. I had mentioned to him that I was looking for one, and he was quite thoughtful to send me the link to the one he found, which out of my searching I didn't see that one. 
it was a very good deal. It was one ten and seven dollars shipping. After doing some reading, I found it was comparable to my System 76 Pangolin's Ryzen 5 4500U CPU. It is my daily driver when I'm away at work and when I'm not using one of my review laptops. I have no performance issues using it, so the Tiny will be a good fit for uh, use at home here. It's kind of funny where I ordered that Tiny from. I drove right by the city when I was in California. <laughs> So, uh, but it was no conceivable way I could have picked it up locally, even though that seller did have the option of driving to their location to pick it up, which would have been funny showing up in the semi and saying, yeah, can I have my Tiny now? The Tiny is a model M715Q, which has an AMD Ryzen 5 Pro 2400GE, 3.2 gigahertz CPU with 16 gigabytes of RAM is a single stick. Two display ports, one HDMI, three USB 3, and three USB 2 ports. They're like split half on the front, half on the back. A wireless and wired networking. It didn't come with a drive, so I'll use the 250 gigabyte Crucial MX500 SSD that I had laying around. It was the two that I had found a month or so ago. If I need more storage, the Tiny has an M.2 slot available. To finish the setup off, I will use a spare 27-inch monitor with the Tiny. I found out that my spare monitor was actually 24 inches, and it only had VGA and DVI, which the Tiny doesn't have, so I had to buy another monitor, which I found a really good deal at Micro Center for a Samsung refurbished. I can give the specs next uh, episode. Well, the Think Center Tinies are really good. If you look for them, no OS, you can get them a lot cheaper. That's what I did to find You were looking for just the tiny, and I specifically said no OS, and it came up with that. Oh, that's how you found that. I didn't think of using the no OS uh, search term. Why pay for Windows when you're not going to use it anyhow? Yeah, good point. Yeah. So, Eric, uh, what have you been up to this uh, past month? Well, I had an interesting experience this month. My Pixel 5a phone died suddenly and catastrophically. Uh, I've never had a smartphone that just completely failed the way this one did, where it just literally turned off and never turned on again. Uh, so that was genuinely a surprise. I kept you know, playing this game <laughs> over the next few days of trying to hold down the buttons in some combination. And I mean, when you have a a phone that's basically a sealed device and it won't turn on. In an old phone, maybe you could pull the battery or there'd be something you could try. And if this one doesn't turn on using <laughs> the volume or the power button, then really not much else you can do. So yeah, it was definitely a, a bit of a shock for me. And it was the first time that I didn't have a phone for a very, very long time, for, basically for as long as I can remember. Because I always had, you know, my old version of a phone laying around or, you know, something, at least something I could use. And this time I just didn't. All of the phones that I had, I'd either gifted to other people or just wouldn't work. Uh, so find myself, you know, without a phone. And uh, the whole time I didn't have it, I was reaching for it and coming up empty handed. Uh, it's hard to believe how many things I do on my phone and how I've come to rely on it so heavily. And here's just a few things that I had to put off doing until I got my new phone. So paying bills, um, using apps, especially like banking apps, has become much easier 
on a mobile device than it has actually using their ancient, awful websites. And uh, so I had some bills to pay and I thought, well, I'll just wait until I get the new phone because it'll be much easier to deal with listening to podcasts. So for the most part, I did listen to a few on my computer, but I don't really sit still when I listen to podcasts. Usually I'm, I'm doing dishes in the kitchen or something, you know, I'm, I'm up on my feet. And so I almost always use my phone. So I had a pretty good backlog of, <laughs> of podcasts to get through. And then just communicating. I mean, who knew, right? Using a phone to communicate. But, you know, I had a backlog of SMS messages and phone, you know, voicemail. I actually had people that were getting upset at me because they were trying to text me and call me and I wasn't answering, obviously. And so they hunted me down and uh, made sure they let me know that they were unhappy with me. <laughs> so, but my big takeaway from this experience is that I can, in fact, survive without a phone. Uh, it does make life much less convenient and alienates me from people that I communicate with via phone and SMS, which in the U.S. for our international listeners is still a lot of people. Most people still use SMS messaging. Maybe someday we will collectively move to something that isn't you know, device dependent, like a WhatsApp, although that's kind of a terrible option. Um, I do use Telegram, but not all of my friends and family do. So anyway, someday maybe. But the flip side of this is when a phone dies, it's an excuse to get a new one. So I was forced to look at getting something. In the past, I used to get a new phone every two years. That was the cadence. Again, for our international listeners, we had subsidized devices. Uh, so your carrier would give you an allotment that every two years you can pick a new phone. And that was sort of how I got phones for the longest time. And then in more recent times, it's because that doesn't exist anymore. They'll let you take the device, but then you have to pay it back a little bit every month. So anyway, I just buy mine used and was able to find a uh, Pixel 7. So the device that died was a Pixel 5a, and I replaced it with a Pixel 7. I didn't think I was going to get another Pixel. I thought maybe I'd get a Samsung or a OnePlus or something else, but the Pixel just has some compelling things that really make it work better for me than other Android uh, manufacturers' devices. So went with that. And um, the other thing it lets me try is uh, something I haven't tried in a long time, which is wireless charging. And I know a lot of devices have had wireless charging for a long time, but the last time I tried it, it was like two or three generations ago, and the device was loud and it didn't really work very well. It was a very slow charge process. Like it would literally take like six hours of sitting there. So I got a new 15 watt charger, the Qi standard charger, and um, so I'm going to try that. So that's been my venture this month is um, dealing with mobile device shenanigans. So Yeah, the Pixel 5 was the first model that used Google's own chip, and they had a lot of problems with it. And the 6, they said they had problems with some of the Wi-Fi transmitters, but the 7, they apparently got their act in gear. Well, so far, it's been a wonderful device. I'm thoroughly enjoying using it. So especially the on-device stuff because of that chip, the uh, voice dictation. Swappa is where it's at. Oh, Swappa. Yeah. Swappa is amazing. It really is. <laughs> I was going to do that because Moss had mentioned that site to me before when I went to AT&T because of my continued service problems with Verizon. And they said, oh, we got the uh, the Pixel 6 Pros. 
And they said, yeah, I just don't want to pay for a $1,000 phone. They're like, oh, you're a new customer. <laughs> we could uh, give it to you for free. Oh. And I'm like, oh, really? I <laughs> said, so what, what's the uh, the catch here? And the guy's like, you remember the uh, subsidized phone system you used to have where you agreed to be a customer for two years and the phone's yours? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's what we're doing. And he says, now, don't be alarmed and come back and uh, yell at me. I've seen it go as long as three months. But he said, you'll see that you're paying for the phone for the first one to three months. But then once it gets into the system, you'll see credits. Okay. And and then now when I look at the bill, which I I don't do anymore, but I was tr- making <laughs> to make sure I wasn't paying for a phone. But it, it has an itemized list and it basically says – 26 or 28 dollars a month or whatever it would have cost mm-hmm. then i have a credit of 28 dollars. <laughs> that's great i don't understand corporate accounting <laughs> well let's move along updates where we discuss what we've learned about distros we've already reviewed linux mint debian edition 6 fay has been released We have discussed some about having us all review it next episode. That could be fun. There have been some updates in Bodhi 7, and the App Pack ISO is out now in RC, with a 32-bit to follow as soon as that gets out of RC. Dale? Spiral Linux 12.23.1001 has been updated to Debian 12 Bookworm. In addition to Linux kernel 6.1 LTS, They also have Linux kernel 6.4 added from the Debian backports. Another new feature is a low-latency pipewire configuration for JAK-compatible live audio applications. The libinput, or libinput, depending on how you want to pronounce it, library is replacing synaptics for mouse and touchpad control and configuration. Snapper for snapshot management has changed its default to not utilize more than 40% of available disk space using the automatic BTRFS snapshots. An update to uh, 12.2 for a Debian bookworm is available. It has updates to a couple dozen packages and the Debian installer itself. There is also the 11.8 update to old stable, Debian 11 bullseye. It follows the same updates as 12.2. Ubuntu Budgie Release 23.10 Manic Minotaur with 9 months of support. Version 10.8 of Budgie with GNOME 45 updates. Linux Kernel 6.4, a brand new ISO utilizing their very own Budgie desktop installer. And Zubuntu 23.10 was released with the same updates as I mentioned for uh, Budgie. But they include... XFCE 4.18 and Mate 1.26. I did want to say I've noticed that some other distros are switching to a lib or lib input, mostly because of the compatibility with Wayland. It has a different command syntax, so you have to read the man page or go to uh, their site to uh, read how to configure it. I will point out that all the Ubuntu's had to be pulled and re-released because in some of the foreign language editions. 
there was some hate speech in some of the documentation and they had to remove that. And so now you'll see 23.10.1 already out. It's a shame. Yeah. Eric? So I have nothing new other than to say that Linux Mint continues to perform flawlessly as my daily driver on my Dell XPS laptop. And it's been going strong for so long at this point that I'm not sure what will eventually replace it, but it's going to have to be something pretty special. Okay, moving along. Beautiful failures. What we tried and failed to install or run this month. I have not had any problems to do with distros or software. I've already talked about the problems I have had, so I won't do that again. Dale? I haven't had any failures, except for the potential problem of my desktop requiring me to use my pangolin for this recording. (laughs) (laughs) Eric? Well, I suppose I could claim that my phone dying is a failure, but I really can't take much credit for it because I didn't—I don't think I did anything actively to cause it, but I was merely using the browser to search for a recipe and it shut off, like I mentioned, and hasn't turned off. And like I said, I play this game where every other day or so I pick it up and <laughs> try to turn it on, just hoping. I, st- I have some files on it that I'd like to get off of it. It's not, you know, they're not like irreplaceable. It's just some pictures and things that I wouldn't mind having. But the actual sort of failure that turned out to not be a failure in, in the end after I figured it out, but during the uh, the initial process was definitely a failure, was using CloneZilla. And I had backed up some partitions prior to installing another distro, thinking that I might want to go back to the previous setup. And it turns out I was right. So I attempted to restore the partitions to the same disk and partitions that the backup was based on. So literally nothing had changed. It was just the data that was on the partitions was different. Note the use of the word attempted because what I got instead of a restored partition was an error that the destination was too small. And I knew for sure that that wasn't the case, but the best part was that the error message provided both the size needed to restore the partition as well as the size of the destination partition, which were in fact the same number. (laughs) It was one of those moments where you just sort of stare at the screen and scratch your head and go, well, 326 gigabytes is the same number in both places. So I don't know what's going on. But anyway, I tried a bunch of stuff because at that point I'm like, all right, well, you know, it wasn't critical, but I just was annoyed because the whole point of taking the time to use CloneZilla and create the partition images was that I wanted to be able to restore them. And I thought, oh, well, this will just be straightforward. I haven't changed the sizes, blah, blah, blah. And no, it was, you know, I have those days where I just feel like nothing I do is easy. You know, it's like the most straightforward, simple things that are supposed to work a certain way just refuse to work and can be really frustrating. So uh, what I ended up doing was booting into a live session and resizing the destination partition by adding like two gigabytes of extra space. And at that point, the restoration did work, although that it messed up the, I think the GUID of the partition changed or something happened where I had also restored the EFI partition, but now something wasn't matching up properly and so it wouldn't boot. So I actually then had to boot into the live session again and root into the distro's root directory and then rerun the grub uh, install and all of that stuff. And after that, it was fine. <laughs> so, But something that should have taken me, I don't know, 15 minutes, maybe half an hour at the most, ended up taking a couple hours. And it's been the story of my life for the last couple months. It just seems like every time I sit down to do the simplest thing, 
that I've budgeted 15 minutes to do, it ends up I'm spending half the day, you know, banging my head. If it was something that I was doing and being dumb, then I would accept the consequences and just say, okay, well, dummy, it's your fault. So, but I feel like none of these things have been my fault and it's just really frustrating. So anyway, in the end, it wasn't a failure, but it was definitely a hassle. I really prefer to use open source software whenever I can. Prior to using Clonezilla, I had been using a Cronus disk image, I think it's called, or something like that, which is a proprietary true image. That's what it is. It's a proprietary piece of software. It's still Linux-based, but it's proprietary. And, you know, I would prefer not to use it if I can help it. Although I'll say it's a much nicer setup. It's much easier to use. And after this experience, I probably will end up using it because I just was that frustrated by this, you know, the numbers are the same. <laughs> it should work, but it doesn't. Eric? Yes? Have you tried RescueZilla? I haven't. RescueZilla, I know you and Dale are hardened long-term Linux users and all that. RescueZilla is written more for less experienced users. Uh, it has a base of Clonezilla and then a different front end. And uh, it's much easier to use. And I just thought I'd suggest that. Then I will absolutely give that a try before fall over to or fail back to a uh, proprietary solution. But anyway, all right, well, let's move on to the reviews. Okay, first up is Eric in the reviews. The distro I went with is Manjaro 23 Uranus Cinnamon Edition. So the 23 release is just across the board for all of Manjaro. So they have, um, and I, I get into it here a little bit, but they, they have basically three different desktop specific versions that are the official releases. And then they have a bunch of community ones and all of them inherit the same release uh, structure, which isn't uncommon, but I just wanted to make mention of it. Uh, the reason I chose it is it's been a while since I've used an Arch-based distro. And in the interest of being a well-rounded reviewer, <laughs> I thought I would give Manjaro a try. And I was an avid Manjaro GNOME user for the better part of a year, several years ago. And I generally had a pretty positive experience with it. They do a lot in terms of customizing the desktop and giving you tools to have different layouts and color themes. And they, basically customizing it is, is much easier because they put so much effort into it. But I eventually found some creative way to break it. <laughs> and it required more effort to fix than I was willing to put into it. So it got replaced with something else. And usually after about a year, I'm, I'm ready to move on to something else anyway. Manjaro offers KDE Plasma, GNOME, and XFCE versions as official editions, as I mentioned, and also has a number of community editions based on a variety of desktop environments and window managers, Cinnamon being one of them. They all have a bit of a unique twist on theming and which software they include by default. So they can seem pretty substantially different from each other. If you get the Mate version from the Cinnamon version from the Gnome version, they can have a quite different set of, you know, software and themes and different things. So they all loosely adhere to the teal green uh, Manjaro theming, but uh, definitely not homogenous across the range. So one of the very noticeable aspects of any Manjaro edition is the amount of effort that goes into customizing the look and feel. Uh, like it or not, the maintainers meticulously theme each version using that teal color that I mentioned. And if you like teal, you're in luck. And if not, 
they do a good job of providing several other options in terms of themes, usually. And my preferred one for cinnamon are the mint themes anyway. And fortunately, they include those themes. Uh, so I was able to just switch over to those. And looks aside, the maintainers also include a good deal of software. The ISO file for this edition is 3.4 gigabytes, which is definitely not small. And a good bit of that being additional software beyond the base system. My hardware. So I used both my laptop and my desktop for this review because I needed something different on my desktop. And uh, I wanted to try it on my laptop as well. The laptop is a Dell XPS 15 9570, an 8th generation Coffee Lake Intel i7-8750H, which is a 6-core 12-thread processor at 4.1 gigahertz. I'm up to 32 gigs of RAM at this point, but DDR4 2666 RAM. It has a Toshiba 256 gig NVMe, which is the system drive, and then a crucial one terabyte uh, SSD as a data drive. Hybrid NVIDIA graphics, which is a GTX 1050 Ti mobile, and then the Intel Coffee Lake HGT2 UHD 630 graphics. The desktop is an AMD Ryzen 5 5600, which is also a 6-core 12-thread processor. It has 16 gigs of RAM, 2 terabytes of storage spread over 4 different drives, and an NVIDIA GeForce RTX 2060 with 6 gigs of VRAM. Uh, installation ease and issues. Manjaro uses the Calamari's installer, which has matured into one of, if not the most, usable installers on the desktop Linux space. It hasn't always been that way, but I can't remember the last time I had a bad experience with it. I did need to perform a custom installation on the laptop as I was replacing an existing installation and had to set the correct partitions for the installer. This is all very straightforward in Calamari's, although that is coming from someone who does this pretty frequently, so that statement may not hold true for everyone. Otherwise, it's a usual fare of verifying that the location and language options are correct and essentially clicking next through. There aren't any real surprises here other than one fairly unique aspect, which is the inclusion of a screen at the end asking which office suite you'd like to use. And these include the default option of none, as well as the obvious choice of LibreOffice, but there's also one that's less known, which is FreeOffice. And I can't be sure, but I think this is how I discovered FreeOffice in the first place. But regardless, it's been my preferred office suite for many years at this point. I like the fact that it closely matches a slightly older and more usable version of Microsoft Office. Uh, I often use TextMaker and PlanMaker, which is their word processor and spreadsheet application. Uh, being able to install it as part of the overall installation process is a nice touch. Let me interrupt. Yes, sir. I have been using SoftMaker Office, which is the professional version of FreeOffice, since 2008. Oh, my. They came out with a Linux version in 2012, and I've been using that. But they only let you have so many installations in your license. And so if I'm installing something that I'm just going to use for a while, I go ahead and put FreeOffice on it instead of uh, SoftMaker Office. Do you use it with your schoolwork and stuff like that? Yes. And you haven't had any issues? I actually, I was using it while I was a senior editor at a tiny publishing company, and people were trying to use LibreOffice, and it was messing up the scripts because the formatting is different. Mm. The ODT format is much different from Microsoft Office and frequently messes up the whole thing. I can, can't count the number of times I had to totally convert it to text and reformat the whole file. Oh, geez. And I have never had that problem with, uh, with SoftMaker. Yeah, and I, I've had really good luck with it too, so I'm glad to hear that. I, I've been considering purchasing the SoftMaker, like the full suite. It's not expensive, so I think I may do that to support them. But uh, 
It's like a third the price of Microsoft Office. Yeah. And they, they do now have a subscription plan just like Microsoft does, but I'd rather just buy the thing. Comes out A new version comes out every two or three years and upgrades are half the regular price. Yeah. And it's just, it's very familiar, but also uh, performance and just, it's it's a very nicely built Linux-based Office suite. You might have uh, sold me on that finally, Moss, because I just use <laughs> LibreOffice out of habit because it started you know, being the default in a lot of these distros. Yeah. Well, I do prefer open source software, but if it doesn't do the job, you have to find something else. And I'd rather pay a small amount to a German software company than a large amount to Microsoft. Yeah. And I think if you were to do have an end-to-end LibreOffice shop where like everybody was using it, then you wouldn't have any issues. It's where you're trying to interoperate between and the rest of the world's using Microsoft Office, so you know that's really where the big, you know, downfall of LibreOffice is. So thanks for letting me interrupt. Let's get no, back absolutely, to this absolutely. I'm very. I was interested to hear that. So, all right. So the installation was quick, and uh, you know, you reboot at the end and jump into the new system. So post installation hardware and uh, facts and issues. One of the things I appreciate about Manjaro as compared to most other Arch-based distros is the fact that they provide a fully configured system. Uh, Vanilla Arch and many of the installation distros provide a simple base installation that requires a good bit of additional configuration to be considered what I would consider a complete desktop. And these are things like Bluetooth, printing support, and other things that are really sort of low level and that you kind of expect to be there. But again, with Arch, you are expected to make all these decisions yourself. So, And many people enjoy that. That's what they want. They want to be able to, to pick and choose every little piece of their system. I think there was a time in the past where that appealed to me, but at this point in my life, I've got better things to do (laughs) and I find it to be sort of unnecessary and tedious. Uh, Having Manjaro or any other distro do that for me is really uh, the better solution for me. So I enjoy using Arch tools like Pac-Man and uh, other stuff like the Yay to access the AUR, so it's an AUR helper. They're just great package managers with features that I really enjoy. And even though there's an apparent abundance of software available on Arch, ironically, I tend to have more issues in getting the software I want on Arch than on something like Ubuntu. It's one of the main reasons that I stopped using Arch, and I'm sure there will be people that disagree with me there because of things being in the AUR, except that the AUR can be less than ideal. In many cases, things are out of date or have multiple packages for the same thing. There'll be a bin and then another that you have to compile. Is there an advantage one over the other? Who knows? Because no one will actually explain that to you. Trying to figure that stuff out for yourself can be really frustrating. And what also is frustrating is that you pick one and you start using it and then whoever's maintaining it doesn't continue to maintain it. And so now you have an abandoned piece of software. The AUR works really well for mainstream stuff that isn't in the main repos. That's been my experience. And outside of that, the more esoteric things that are sort of fringe and only used by maybe a couple dozen people, you know, you're sort of on your own. So to be, you know, better or worse, everybody who makes software for Linux is packaging stuff for Ubuntu. And so if you're on an Ubuntu-based distro, you pretty much have your pick of whatever software is available. So Anyway, so that's that's been a consistent problem for me over the years with Arch. And uh, anyway, so using Manjaro cuts down on the usual deluge of updates that you normally see with vanilla Arch. I appreciate the curated approach that Manjaro takes by way of their repository approach. 
you tend to get a trickle of important updates and then large stable updates, which can be a gigabyte or more comprised of hundreds of packages. So they have sort of a release process where things go into unstable and then testing and then stable, and there's a sort of a cadence there. And then once stuff is done in testing, it gets released to stable and, and then you'll get, and it's a bunch of stuff at once. So it's not just a few packages here and there. It is possible to use any of the repositories if you don't want to wait for things to hit stable. So you can use testing or even unstable if you just want to have a system that has the Manjaro tools, but still, you know, is getting the daily updates or day-to-day -day updates. But I like to stick with stable because, you know, the whole point of Manjaro in my book is that you are using a system that includes a little bit extra, I guess, QA check on the packages that you're using. You know, it's, I guess, a little less fragile than Vanilla Arch. So I, as I mentioned, I set the theme to the Mint Y uh, dark color variants. I, I, you know, depending on the day, <laughs> I'll pick a different color. But I noticed that the Mint Y icon set wasn't uh, installed by default. So I went to Linux Mint's GitHub repository and downloaded those and installed them. And then now I had an entire set of the Mint themes and icons. And so now Cinnamon looked <laughs> like it's supposed to in my mind, which is basically Linux Mint. So those were all the things I had to do to sort of do the post-install setup and then getting into sort of ease of use and day-to-day -day stuff. Uh, Pamac is used in many editions of Manjaro as the GUI package manager, which is true of the Cin Cinnamon edition as well. It's a, it's developed by Manjaro. It's a, a GUI front end for Pac-Man and also includes AUR support, Flatpak support, and Snap support if you enable them. So... It's nice to have a GUI package manager when you want to search for things, but I just find myself being more comfortable with the command line and using Pac-Man directly or Yay as an AUR helper. And I've had some issues with Pamac where it just it's not perfect and incorporating in the other package formats can be problematic. But I've had problems with all GUI package managers. To be fair, I don't really like any of them. And I just tend to use the command line because A, it's really not that hard and B, it's a very sort of direct way to do it. And you're able to, I don't know, it's it's much easier to manage that, than having it abstracted through several layers of like a GUI process. We can't actually see what's happening. And that's probably just the way I like to use a computer. And I'm sure lots of people prefer the GUI method. But uh, for me, <laughs> I'm happy with Pac-Man. And actually, one of the interesting things about Pac-Man is that it has multi-threaded downloads. So if you, you have to enable them. So in this case, I had to go into the pacman.conf file. There's actually a setting for simultaneous downloads and it's by default, it's five, which is enough. But the effect of that is that it downloads things way faster than most package managers. If you use Pac-Man and then you go use something like DNF, it's, it's almost painful. So yay which is apparently a yog uh, an acronym for yet another yogurt. I don't understand that, but uh, that's what the, the GitHub page says. Is uh, It's an AUR helper, meaning that it lets you access data from the AUR directly rather than needing to download the package build file manually and then running make package. Um, this saves time and is especially useful for managing updates. Uh, I would never advocate blindly installing software from the AUR, so it's still a good idea to review the package build, but Yay lets you do this as part of the installation process. It'll actually prompt you, do you want to look at the package build? And you can say yes, and then it'll show it to you on the screen. 
Uh, and you can even edit it from that point, save it, and then have it your edited version run instead of the default one. Outside of package management, Manjaro includes a number of custom tools to make it using it easier than vanilla Arch. The Manjaro settings manager contains Manjaro hardware detection, language, kernel, keyboard, time and date, and user account options. The hardware detection is particularly useful uh, in getting the right drivers installed to support your hardware. In my case, I needed the NVIDIA driver on my desktop and the hybrid equivalent on my laptop, and that worked flawlessly in both cases. In general, I would classify Manjaro as a mid-level distro in terms of expectation of the user to be proficient at administering their system. It's easy enough to install and use on a day-to-day -day basis, but I often find myself needing to use the terminal to manage the system, which isn't necessarily a hardship, but nor is it exactly user-friendly. I could make the argument that no operating system is 100% user-friendly, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Memory and disk use. I ran the while-true-do-free-hm sleep 10 done, which just is essentially is a 10-second timer loop to keep running do uh, free-hm. The reason I do that is because if you notice whenever you first boot in uh, or log into any desktop environment that it's a little bit of a churn to start with. So a bunch of stuff, if there's any auto start stuff, it's going to start up and consume memory and then some things will pull more memory than they need and then release it. So if you sort of watch it over a minute or so, then you get a better sense of like how much it's using. So in this case, it started out using one gigabyte and then leveled out at 940 megabytes after a minute or so. So not the lowest memory system, but again, at 3.4 gigabytes, that ISO has a lot of stuff coming uh, installed along with the, the desktop environment and the base system. So there's stuff starting in the background that's taking up extra memory. And to go along with that, when I use DF-H to show the base installation disk usage, it was 8.7 gigabytes, which again, isn't terrible, but that's still a little higher than, than some other distros. And again, it's because of those extra packages. So. Ease of finding help, the Manjaro project is over a decade old and has attracted a large following. They have one of the most active and helpful forums I have yet seen with any Linux distro. For an old school guy like me who prefers forums to more modern ephemeral options like Discord, Telegram, Matrix, and so on, this is actually a wonderful thing. Yes, the newer systems have a history that can be searched, but that user experience compared to a forum is, well, not the same. <laughs> But, uh, you know, enough of me standing on the lawn yelling at the neighborhood kids. The, uh, the point is that Manjaro has a large and mostly helpful user base available on the forum and apparently on Facebook and X as well, although uh, I'll have to take their word for that. Plays nice with others. Manjaro has no problem detecting and accommodating my other Linux instance and adding it to the grub menu. What I find even more interesting is that the boot menu is configured to remember the last selected option. So... Technically, you can have Manjaro entry selected in your BIOS settings, and each time you reboot, it will just remember that selection so that you don't have to actually go into the EFI boot menu and pick a different boot option. I don't think I've seen any other distro that does that where it remembers the other choice, so kind of an interesting little quirk. Actually, I have seen that rather often. And if you use Grub Customizer, that's a setting that you can select. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't tend to, to do that too often. but I will point out that if you then load something else on your system and it takes Grub, it will not be able to see Manjaro. 
Manjaro has to be in control of the grub menu for it to play nicely with your other distros. Oh, interesting. Okay. Stability? Here's where things took a turn for the worse, unfortunately. I experienced an unacceptable number of lockups on both my desktop and laptop. These necessitated a hard reset of the computer by holding down the power button and, you know, literally, you know, hard reset. I haven't needed to do this with any other distro in a long time. You know, it's not that Linux never has problems, it's, and certainly <laughs> I cause enough of them, but usually when a system isn't unresponsive, you can go to a different TTY and, you know, recover from there. You can restart the, you know, login manager, whatever it is that's hung up on the system, or at least do a, a, a soft reboot from there, not have this like hard lockup. So, I wasn't able to find a consistent rhyme or reason as to the cause of the lockups, and sadly, they were happening at the worst of times. I mentioned earlier finding out the hard way that Audacity's uh, recover feature works, <laughs> and that was due to having been recording for over an hour on a podcast and then having the machine lock up and needing to reset, and then whenever I started Audacity back up, it actually prompted me to recover. So. For those of you who might be wondering, Audacity does a good job of recovering itself. So it's great that, that, <laughs> that it works that way, but not great that I had to find it out the hard way. So my sense has to do that it was hardware issue, except that it happened on both systems. So I can't be entirely sure about that. And I don't have this issue with other distros. And the bottom line is I, I wasn't able to trust it and I'm, I'm no longer running it on either of those systems. So yeah, it didn't work out in the end, but, um, that was unfortunate. It, I haven't had that happen before, but um, there you go. So similar distros to check out. There's not really anything exactly like Manjaro, but I suppose Arco Linux is close. If the goal is to install Arch in a more user-friendly way, then I think something like Endeavor OS is probably a better choice. There's a Brazilian distro I've been trying to think of the name of that is really close to Manjaro, except it works. And I, <laughs> okay. I just can't remember the name of it right now. Okay. For the ratings, uh, ease of installation for a new user is 8 out of 10, and an experienced user is 10 out of 10. Hardware support, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help, 10 out of 10. Ease of use, I'm going to say 7 out of 10, just because, again, my experience with the package manager and some of the other stuff wasn't great, and I think it would really throw off a less experienced user. Plays nice with others, I'll say 10 out of 10. And stability, as I just mentioned, I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. And when you do the math on that, it actually comes out to 8 out of 10, which is a little higher than I actually would, <laughs> would give it. So mathematically, it's an 8 out of 10, but I'm going to say less rationally, it feels like a 6 or a 7 out of 10. Just the lockups are inexcusable. If you can't trust your computer, you know, it's kind of hard to uh, be okay with that. So, but my final comments are, as I mentioned above, I've been a Manjaro user for a good while. Before that, I had used van Vanilla Arch as well. There is definitely an appeal to having access to the latest and greatest in software, but I found that appeal waning after a while. New software sometimes means changes that you weren't expecting, and that creates problems where otherwise there might not have been any. I have found myself experiencing update fatigue, if there is such a thing. I would perform an update and literally minutes later, there would be more, more updates. That's just a little too cutting edge for me. And uh, Manjaro alleviates this to a large degree because of their repository setup. You still have access to very new software and access to the AUR. They have a very large and mostly helpful community. Even had several instances where I interacted with Philip Mueller 
who founded Manjaro and is very active on the forum. They put a ton of effort into providing a fully configured desktop experience that encompasses just about every notable desktop environment and window manager available. It's unfortunate that I had issues this time that forced me to move on to something else, but I can guarantee it won't be the last time I use Manjaro. It's absolutely one of the more notable distros and especially one I can recommend to anyone wanting to try Arch Linux without doing it the Arch way. I did remember the name. It's Big Linux. Oh. And you might want to check that out. It, it was a really good distro. One of my favorite things of it, the next version I saw didn't have that in it. So uh, maybe they brought it back. I don't know. But Big Linux is something worth checking. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. But now... On to happy days. Moss gets to review one of his favorite distros of all time. So take it away, Moss. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. (laughs) (laughs) This episode, I am reviewing Bodie 7.0.0 64-bit. Intro, most of you have figured out this is my favorite distro. I donate to the team monthly. I will be struggling to remain objective. I will do my best. This is the closest thing to a major distro featuring Enlightenment Window Manager at present, and it has been since its beginnings. Moksha Desktop is a fork from Enlightenment E17, which is still the most stable version of E to date, and it also features backports from later versions of E. This is not a desktop which mimics Windows, and that by itself is the main reason to not send new users of Linux to it, unless you think they're up for something new and different, not just a Windows replacement. But if you can get used to it, you will find it much easier to use with less mouse movement and fewer keystrokes. My hardware, I used my Lenovo ThinkPad T540P. This computer has a fourth generation Intel Core i7-4710MQ with 16 gigs of RAM and a 512 gigabyte silicon power SSD with both Intel HD Graphics 4600 and NVIDIA GeForce GT730M graphics. Someday I will actually try games on it and find out what the NVIDIA driver does. I installed using the entire disk. Installation ease and issues, the installer is ubiquity with a couple of nice flourishes added. Nothing to see here. It's just the old Ubuntu installer everyone's used to by now. There are some really nice screens, especially if you like green. The ISO comes in three flavors, depending on how recent your hardware is, including the base 5.15 kernel from Ubuntu 22.04, a 6.2 kernel from Ubuntu HWE, and the special System76 6.4 kernel for those of you who simply must have the latest stuff for your gaming. It does not include any apps except for Bodhi Chromium, There will be an app pack version later. It's in RC right now with all the expected software inclusions, such as LibreOffice. But for now, you need to install your faves using apt, synaptic, or the Bodhi Manager, which is written in HTTP and is featured in Bodhi Chromium. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. It boots up so nicely. I'm a huge fan of green, and their use of metallics and very subtle GIFs speaks to me. However, if you have a laptop, Moksha still does not offer a feature to disable your touchpad, and if you have a keypad, there is no feature to set the NumLock. There is NumLock X in the repos for the latter, and you have to add a PPA named Atario to get touchpad-indicator to do the former. I have another fix later. Ease of use. To me, there's nothing easier than using Bodhi. You never have to go fishing for the menu bar. A simple click, yes, left click, anywhere on the unused desktop space will bring up the menu. You can also designate certain apps as favorites, in which case a right click will bring that menu up. 
I found one program I used to have a bug, which is PySol FC. And the bug is also found in Linux Lite 4.x. The app opens top left, and I prefer it in the center. Moving it there is quite likely to trigger full screen mode, and once that has been triggered, the game freezes on your first card selection, even if you return it to the smaller screen. If you don't trigger the full screen mode, the game works fine. To get the full effects of Bodhi, you would probably like to visit all the terrific themes the team has developed, but to do that, you have to open terminology and type sudo apt install bodhi-theme-pack. And they have dozens of them, and they completely change everything. So if you don't like green, there are plenty of options. I hadn't been a Moksha user, and I was very impressed by it, it literally changes everything. <laughs> More so than most systems I've ever used. So if you don't like green, like Moss said, there's lots of options. Stefan and Hippie Taff work very hard on the that part of the distro. I think Stefan does most of the theming. Okay, the Bodhi Ad Pack ISO is in RC status, which would include all the themes and a nice selection of software. Some would call it bloat, but I found it to save a lot of time. I also installed Grub Customizer, because I do that, Ubuntu Restricted Extras, and my games, plus I installed Flatpak, and from there added Telegram, Discord, and PySol SC. I grabbed Audacity from the repo, 2.4.2. Since my T540P is indeed a laptop, I added Touchpad Indicator and fiddled with NumLock X a bit. There is another way to disable the touchpad, which requires opening terminology and adding this command to tilde slash point e slash e slash applications slash startup slash startup commands. And the command is sin client touchpad off equals one. And you'll find that in the show notes with the correct capitalization and all. Memory and disk use. I used 13.8 gigabytes of space on my SSD. I don't know why it was that much, but I did add in all my word processor and uh, all the stuff I use. However, here's the fun part. When I used free-hm, I had 381 megabytes of memory being used. I have been told that some people, if they don't like to have the uh, panel or the start button or this or that and just want to just use the computer, get it down to 100 megabytes. You can't do this with any other distro. Ease of finding help. I've been using Bodhi for so long I don't need much help, but the Discord channel and the Bodhi forums are both good places to get help. They were temporarily hosting the forum on linuxquestions.org, but got their own space about three years ago. Of course, Linux Questions is always a good site, and in my opinion, it is being underutilized, so check it out if you get any free time. Plays nice with others. I'm currently booting to Mint and LMDE in addition to Bodhi on my studio machine, so yes, it will definitely play nice with Debian and Ubuntu distros. Anything that doesn't use regular Grub 2, maybe not so much. Stability. I have not had questions of stability since version 5. This is not only based on LTS Ubuntu, but they take over a year after the LTS to get Bodhi ready, so they take the time to iron out the bugs first. Gaming ease optional. I have not tried gaming on Bodhi myself, but two-thirds of the developer team are gamers and do their gaming on Bodhi, so it must be pretty good. That probably explains why they have a version using the System76 6.4 Linux kernel as well. Similar distros to check out, there aren't many. Xlite is one I have found, but uh, Arn Exton has a tendency to only test his distros on his own system, and so if they don't work on yours, you're out of luck. Ratings. Ease of installation. New user, 8 out of 10. It might be 9 if you've used Ubuntu a few times. Experienced user, 10 out of 10. Hardware issues, 9 out of 10. Ease of finding help, community, and web, 10 out of 10. Ease of use, 10 out of 10. 
plays nice with others, 10 out of 10, stability, 10 out of 10, works with games. If you install the System76 kernel, I would still give it a 10 out of 10, though I did not try that myself. Overall rating, 9.5 out of 10. Final comments, this is, has been, and will likely continue to be my favorite distro. The only thing keeping me from using it full-time is I can't find all the controls in E when something goes wrong. I'm certain they're there, but things are confusing to find when you're looking for them. This is the main problem with Enlightenment, is all the menus and controls are set up in Enlightenment, and there's really no way to change that. And there are a lot of words that sound like the same thing that just aren't. So. I know it sounded like there were real issues, but there really aren't. Meanwhile, Mint continues to just work. What I usually do is get my work done in Mint and go play in Bodhi. My hat is off to those who can just use Bodhi, but my skills are still weak. Let's hear now from Dale. My distro this month is Garuda Sway. This was a request from listener... Biku, and anyone else listening wants to uh, hear a distro, just go ahead and uh, contact us at the uh, contacts at the end of the uh, episode. I reviewed Garuda Cinnamon in episode 19 on January of 2021. Given how the time has passed, it is a good opportunity to revisit it. Garuda is an arch-based distro with many additions. It is known for having a lot of eye candy and is easy to install using the uh, Calamaris installer. I've been curious of how X11-based window managers would be adapted to run on Wayland. Sway is a tiling Wayland compositor and functions like the i3 window manager used on X11. Sway can use an existing i3 configuration to be a drop-in replacement. If you're not familiar with tiling window managers, instead of having windows that overlap by using the mouse to resize and move them, tiling window managers use keyboard shortcuts to move and resize the windows. By default, the first one is full screen, the second is half the screen, the third is a third, and the fourth uses a fourth of the screen. The window sizes can be manually adjusted. This is where workspaces also known as virtual desktops, are very useful. Depending on the size of your display, opening multiple windows can result in very small windows. Moving windows to other workspaces can retain a usable size. And uh, after you get to past the fourth, it really starts making small windows in different sizes. (laughs) So uh, you don't really appreciate the uh, workspaces until you start using this uh, method of uh, computing with the tiling. My hardware. The laptop I used is my Lenovo ThinkPad T460. There's a dual-core Intel i5-6200U, 2.8 GHz CPU, 14-inch display using Intel HD Graphics 520, 16 GB of RAM, and a 500 GB Samsung 860 Evo SSD. Installation Ease and Issues The installer I mentioned is Calamaris. It was the same install as any other distro using Calamaris. I installed it using the whole hard drive. Nothing special to uh, mention about the installation. Sort of a one and done for a whole disk installation. Calamaris has always liked that. Yeah. Some of the Arch ones will take advantage of the Frameworks options 
but some of them go away from them. I know Zero used to allow you to install stuff during the install, but he said that that was getting to be too much to maintain, <laughs> so he got rid of it. <laughs> Post-installation hardware facts and issues. Like with other distros, the now speed is way too fast for my liking. Unfortunately, the ability to modify the mouse settings via the GUI wasn't available. In order to change the settings, you need to edit the file name input located under the home folder in .config sway config.d. The configuration options are available from the Wayland documentation on the uh, freedesktop.org website, and this will be in the show notes. And uh, you have to be able to figure out how to set the syntax in order to set your mouse settings. So it's going to be a bit of a learning curve there. The .config slash sway slash config.d folder is where other Wayland configuration files are located. I'm just getting my feet wet in Wayland, so I'm not sure if that's going to be the default for Wayland or if this is something the devs have done. So this is true at least for Garuda. The welcome screen filled the entire display with many applications and links. I will name the application since it's on the shortlist. Garuda Assistant, and all these are going to be preceding Garuda, so I'm just not going to say Garuda this many times. So we have Garuda Assistant, Gamer, Settings Manager, Network Assistant, Boot Options, and then this one's plainly called System Cleaner, the BTRFS Assistant, Partition Manager, and Add Remove Software. The link's at the bottom of the screen to their social media, website, GitLab, and links to uh, other websites, Search, and Bitwarden, among many, many others. With Garuda, you have options. Plenty of options. There was a bar towards the bottom of the welcome screen. It was labeled Garuda Setup Assistant. It opened with a single click of the mouse. Then it performed a system update. Following that, it opened a window of many tabs. There are too many to list all the available actions but I'm going to name a few of them. They include installing a printer, scanner, and Sampa support, additional software such as pen testing, software centers, office-related app, browsers, communication, file transfer, audio, video, and many others. And it's mind-blowing amount of stuff that I didn't even mention. There were also options for different kernels and wallpaper. Each item had a checkbox for easy one-click selection. Clicking OK in the bottom right corner of the window would install your selected choices. A few of the default applications are Alacrity, Bleachbit, Celluloid, Gnome Disk, Fire Dragon, more on this later, OBS Studio, and Thunar. Now I think that's the first distro I've ever seen that had OBS installed. Besides Ubuntu Studio. I was just thinking the same thing. Yep. <laughs> yeah, other than ones that are intended to, uh, to use it. Right, right. So the uh, ease of use. The grub screen was customized with the Garuda logo at the top of the screen with a black background. It has the usual boot options with the addition of the ButterFS snapshots, UEFI firmware settings, and shutdown reboot options. The display manager was themed. An analog clock in the upper left-hand corner. The background image was a starry night with Santa and his reindeer in mid-flight. The wallpaper was the Sway logo. Additional wallpapers are available in the repository. 
I searched all through the file system. I didn't find any. I looked in the uh, regular ones you would look, you know, you would find for uh, once, and I couldn't find them. There was an update notification about a week after installation. I was surprised there weren't any any earlier than that. However, the update consistency increased after that time. The GUI package manager is called PAMEC. The command line application uses the same name. Incidentally, PAMEC's command line application is much better at a common sense command line switches, such as update, install, and remove. This is compared to Pacman's dash capital S lowercase yu, which uh, is usually beamed out as S-Y-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U, and a U for good measure. I attempted to install the updates, but kept getting an error with the Cavantum update. It's a theme manager. It's popular in the Arch world. I've seen it in other distros, too. Pamek suggested I remove it and try again. That led to an error reporting it would break a few dependencies and wouldn't continue. I ended up clicking the blue square on the right side of the Cavantum listing. That set the package to be ignored during the update. Once set to ignore, a window and a pop-up appeared. The window reported the installation was successful and a reboot was recommended. The pop-up read, quote, Partial upgrade detected. You performed a partial upgrade. Please fully update your system to prevent system instability, end quote. Which is kind of ironic because it told me to do the partial update. So I thought that was kind of interesting, but it was kind of nice that it stopped me from borking the system there. <laughs> I tried to update Cavantum again without rebooting or exiting PAMEC. The transaction summary window appeared. It read, quote, To remove Cavantum 1.0.10-1, parentheses, conflicts with Cavantum-QT5, close parentheses, to install cavantum git 1.0.10.r21- and then a whole bunch of letters and numbers. The installation was successful. After rebooting the laptop, Cavantum opened with no issue. Flatpak and Snap are not installed or supported. Garuda devs claim that everything is available either in the Chaotic AOR or the Arch AOR. They do have a link in their wiki to the ArchWiki on how to install and configure Flatpak. In their words, quote, if you absolutely need to, end quote, you can also go to FlatHub, and um, that's just flathub.org slash setup. And I think setup will bring you to the main menu of all the uh, distros, but if you type slash arch, it'll take you specifically to the uh, instructions. If you do install Flatpak, you will need to use their workaround for fish the uh, the shell that they have for um, Garuda, due to a compatibility issue, or use Bash instead. And I have a link in there to their help to uh, use the workaround. One nice thing about Flatpak on Arch-based distros is FlatHub is configured by default. You don't need to, to add it, which I think is really nice. And I know that the lawyers and the solicitors are eyeing some people about including this, but I just think it's really a non-issue. This is not the uh, 1990s with encumbered software patents and stuff. But I digress. Now, as far as their claim that everything is in the AUR, yes, I will say, yeah, a lot of stuff is in the AUR. 
I would say that it is a safe choice for most popular applications. Where you can run into problems is trying some lesser known or lesser used applications. As you can tell from my experience with updating the packages, Arch-based distros can easily be a house of cards. My other complaint about packages in Arch-based distros is there are too many choices for the same package. I tried to install LibreOffice. I searched for it in PAMIC. I did it in the GUI and in uh, the command line. Found page after page after page after page of packages with the LibreOffice name and like letters and numbers after it. I mean, it's confusing. None of them were the package to install it. Nothing to set LibreOffice or LibreOffice base. Nothing to that extent. I had to open Guru to set up a system again and install it from there. You know, click one of the checkboxes and it, and it installed. Guru is using Waybar for the status bar at the top of the screen. This is what is listed from left to right. NWG-Drawer. It's an application menu. Current workspace number. Current focus application or window. A clickable system update. Opens up the terminal. Screen brightness, keyboard language, CPU utilization, memory usage, battery usage, connected Wi-Fi, AP in use, network activity, volume percentage, clickable network settings, a module like caffeine, date, time, and a power menu. I mentioned these because this is configurable, so no Sway desktop is going to be the same from another one. It's completely up to the uh, person that set up the distro. There is one thing that some distros like Garuda do that I don't like. That is forking a web browser and branding it as their own. Now, I'm all for customizing a distro. I don't mind theming a browser. The issue I have is with Fire Dragon, which is Garuda's own branding of Firefox. It is actually a fork of LibreWolf, which is a fork of Firefox. It is one thing to fork a browser to customize it for your distro, but it's another to create a fork of a fork. With the bullseye of finding exploits firmly in web browsers, it's a huge task to keep up date and uh, fixing all these exploits. I don't think being third in line for an update is a great idea. They have one of two choices. Roll their own patches or wait for Mozilla to patch Firefox then wait for LibreWolf to patch their code, then finally be able to pull from their update to fix you know, their code. I am not sure I want to trust their patches, and I don't want to wait for them to patch theirs from the LibreWolf GitHub or GitLab or whatever they use. So with that said, I didn't use FireDragon and instead installed Firefox. Maybe I'm just a bit overly concerned about this. And I did eventually find Firefox to install because it had other names and numbers and letters. And Since I prefer using Bash in the terminal, I tried using the configuration option to switch from Bash from Fish. After many attempts, Bash was never set as the default shell. I prefer Bash because scripts use it. I also don't like the predictive text feature of other shells. Their vision of what the terminal should look like is a bit cluttered for me. They at least had the appropriate colors in the text that were easily seen. 
I call it clutter because I don't need NeoFetch output every time I open the terminal. If they want this visible to the user, just put NeoFetch in the menu and call it something like System Report. I also prefer Joe's own editor, the short name is Joe, instead of Vim, Nano, Pico, etc. It was only available in the AUR. I searched for Joe and selected it for installation. The first attempt to download the targz file failed. I tried it the second time and it was downloaded. From there the automated build script ran to a compile it. After a few minutes I was notified that it was finished. I noticed a few issues downloading updates and I know it was not my internet connection. I wasn't having any other streaming video otherwise, you know, when this occurred. This happened in different locations in the US, so I think their repos have congestion or other issues occasionally. Network issues, I have no idea. When it comes to the usability, the tiling interface is great if you fancy keyboard shortcut workflow. Once I started remembering the commands, I found myself quite at home in Sway. The ability to make a window float with a quick keystroke or to make it tiled full screen is a definite plus in my opinion. It took some time, but I got used to pressing Super D to bring up the application launcher. Pressing the Super key to do that is a hard habit, but it was broken within a couple weeks. As with i3, you can modify the key bindings if they're not to your liking. Switching workspaces was natural to me because I used the same super and number choice on my Ds already. Super shift and the number will move a window to that numbered workspace. Super Q was easy to remember because Pop! OS uses that in their cosmic shell. Super tab had a different behavior compared to Pop! OS. On Pop! OS, it would cycle through the open applications just like Alt tab would do. In Sway, it would switch applications but only on that workspace. There may be an option to change that, but as of this writing, I haven't looked into that. So if you got something on another workspace, you're never going to switch to it, at least in the default configuration. The memory and disk use. I did use um, Eric's little script there for the memory. This is kind of interesting because they do, um, I don't think I mentioned this, but they're using BetterFS as their file system, and they have the snapshots enabled. And it's already configured with all the... I don't know what you want to call that shortcut at home at root whatever the nomenclature is which I still haven't gotten used to butterfs because I don't use it. Disk space 4.3 or 3.72 or 6.02 was used on the SSD. Are you confused? I was. <laughs> After consulting my friend Josh who has used butterfs for a long time. He explained that there's pre-allocation and some other technical things that I'm not going to go into this and this podcast because it's really too complicated for me to even try to explain. But there's like allocation of what was space going to be used or was used or stuff like that. So that's the only thing I'm going to say is it's open source. Modify DF. <laughs> Modify DU. Make it compatible with ButterFS. It's in the kernel, people. But anyways, 631 megabytes of memory was used, um, like I said, using uh, Eric's script using free-hm. That this ButterFS thing just annoys me. It's like, come on, people, it's open source. Ease of finding help. I did look through their wiki. 
there isn't a lot said about Sway except for this thing, the keyboard shortcuts and other brief mentions. They have detailed installation instructions for PCs and Macs, though I believe these are the uh, Intel Macs, not the uh, M1s, M2s. Their official support is their web-based forum. They have a Telegram group, which by their description is for socializing only. I didn't partake in it, so I'm just going to take their, uh, their word for it. Plays nice with others. Given my track record with dual-booting Arch-based distros and the fact that Gruda doesn't recommend dual-booting, I didn't try. They specifically call that out in their installation instructions. Stability. I didn't have any problems. Gaming ease. I, I didn't try any games. Similar distros to check out. Fedora Sway Spin. Ubuntu Sway Remix. Arch Labs. Arch. Endeavor OS. And Debian. The last four have Sway available for installation of their repos, and the state of configuration is going to be up to whoever packaged it. But it'll be a learning experience for you. It'll be good for you. Personal growth. Ratings. Ease of installation new user, 9 out of 10. Experience user, 10 out of 10. Hardware issues, 10 out of 10. Ease of finding help community and web, 8 out of 10. Ease of use, 7 out of 10. Plays nice with fellers, gonna get an X. Didn't do it. Stability, 10 to 10. And like Eric said, mathematically, it's 8.5. I could say it's probably more along the 7.5 to 8.5. Your comfort level and your experience level and your patience level is all going to be factors in this. My final comments. Given the fact this is meant to be the only OS on the computer, I gave a higher rating for the installation for new users. I took a few points off for ease of finding help because there wasn't much Sway-specific help. You could use the i3 help sections as it uses similar config files and commands. I also took some points off for the ease of use. Finding applications in PAMAC was less than satisfactory. The insistence on using the AUR is a bit misguided. I think offering Flatpak but giving a disclaimer that they are supported by the maintainer would have been a nice touch. There is one thing I do want to mention about Wayland in general. One of the issues is with screen sharing. Since each window is independent of one another, sharing a screen with another or other's data with an application like OBS or Zoom, for example, is problematic. This is part of the improved security over XORG. However, the security comes at a price. I am not familiar with OBS, so I don't know if it works on Sway under Garuda. Others in the Linux Saloon Telegram channel have been testing Sway on Wayland. I believe some were using Endeavor OS and were having issues of their own. I also didn't have a chance to uh, test Zoom. Because I heard some others with Sway are having some uh, black screen issues and, and such. So if you want to do video production on Wayland, I would suggest using Plasma or Gnome, as they seem to have better support at this time. Sway is not for a new user who fears the uh, command line or using a, a keyboard in general. If you are feeling adventurous and want to try a new keyboard-centric workflow, Maybe a tiling window manager is in your future, and why not use a Wayland-based one since it will be the future of computing? 
I guess some of us, you know, like it or not, I kind of interested in it. Well, so let's move on to new releases. Take it away, Moss. New releases this month from September 13th through October 19th. Sparky Linux 7.1, Univention 5.0-5, Peropasis 2.2, Tails 5.17.1, System Rescue 10.02, Cache EOS 2023-0917, Manjaro 23.0.2, EasyNAS 1.1.2, Linux FX 11.4.2, SmartOS 2023-0921, OpenMamba 2023-0922, KOS 2023.09, Regatta 23.0.17, Plop 23.4, Porteous 5.01, Zephix 7, Mint 6 LMDE, Fay, Arco Linux 23.10.01, Ganopix 23.10, Alpine 3.18.4, Nutix 23.09.0, Rhino 2023.3, Xero Linux 2023.10, Nutix 23.09.0, PZ 2.3.4, Tails 5.18, Clear 40040, EasyOS 5.5.4, Fugu Ita 7.3-20231041, Miracle 9.2, you might want to check that out, Dale, BSDRP 1.992, Big Linux 2023-10-06, Fat Dog 64901, Debian 12.2.0, Debian Edu 12.2.0, Debian 11.8.0, Manjaro 23.0.3, Spiral Linux 12.231008, Slacks 12.2.0, and Slacks 15.0.4, Blue Star 6.5.6, Raspi OS 2023 10 10. Sparky Linux 2023.10, Archcraft 2023.10.12, KDE Neon 2023.10.12, IP Fire 2.27-Core180, Ubuntu 23.10 All Official Flavors, Tuxedo OS 2-20231013, Ubuntu Budgie 23.10, Easy OS 5.5.5, Voyager 23.10, Q4OS 5.3, WM Live 0.96.0-0, Slackle 7.7, Arch 2023.10.14, MX Linux 23.1, OpenBSD 7.4, NomadBSD 132R-20231013, Ubuntu 23.10.1, all flavors, Ubuntu Budgie 23.10.1, Bicom Systems PBXWare 7.0.0, BROS 23.10 and SmartOS 2023-1019. We have some feedback. Why don't we let Eric do that? Certainly. So from our friend Biku, now on September 19th, he writes and says, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but yours is hands down the best Linux review medium out there, period. Thank you very much for that. Dale, there is a script that makes the task of installing and updating Unify application easy, and he provides a link to that. 
Moss XFCE's whisker menu has an option that displays generic application names like Internet Browser instead of Firefox. This can easily be disabled by going into whisker menu setting and unchecking show generic application names under the general tab and he includes a link to the documentation. I'd also like to praise Moss's ability to pronounce even the foreign words accurately. I'm jealous. I'd second Eric's apprehension about the stability of Rhino Linux due to its base being on the unsupported and sparsely tested development branch of Ubuntu. And finally, I'll end this email with my personal take on Lubuntu LXQT. It's a wonderful project, but it needs to ditch unmaintained OpenBox in favor of either XFWM or KWIN. One thing that's not many are aware of is that you can easily switch to another window manager via LXQT Session Manager, Basic Settings, and Window Manager. And he includes a link to the settings documentation. You can also use any window manager, but my personal recommendations would be either XFWM or KWIN. These two are well-maintained, constantly updated, and don't require external compositors like PyCom. P.S. Dale. Give Language Tool a go. It's a nice open source alternative to Grammarly, and I will second that. I use Language Tool, and I really appreciate it. Sign Biku. Before we leave feedback, we're curious to know what everyone else is using in their daily driver and or spare computer. What are your favorite distros? You can mail each of us with the contact information we'll read in a moment, or you can use the address distrohoppersdigest at gmail.com, which goes to all of us. We're working on a new email address, but in the meantime, let's use that. Well, I was hoping we could do some talking about Biku's email before we went there. But... Okay, he can cut in between. <laughs> I'm just a special person, what can I say? As far as the whisker menu having an option uh, to get rid of the generic names, you shouldn't have to have that option. <laughs> I mean, it, you, it should, if anything, be an option the other direction. Right. If you've got Firefox or... Chrome or Chromium, it should say Firefox, Chrome, or Chromium, not just Internet Browser. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like my gripe of them, you know, compiling their own, you know, web browsers. <laughs> yeah. I, You know, I guess the one argument that you could make for that is if you literally know so little about computers and software that you don't know that Firefox is an Internet Browser, that maybe that's a, a helpful thing to have it be called by its function instead of its its name. Uh, In other words, they're dumbing us down. Uh, potentially, yeah, it looks that way. <laughs> okay. Well, I know from my days of I, in IT, and this is you know dating myself, you know, twenty years ago. Well, actually, that's when I left IT because I did it for eight years. But I don't know if this, like I said, if this is still what people think. But there are people that think that the Internet Explorer is the Internet. And you delete it off the computer, the internet's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, remember the IT crowd. If you've watched that, yeah, they they literally gave their manager a box and said, "This is the internet. Don't break it." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, uh, Biku's uh, thing about the Unify application issue that I had, I actually because I think trying to remember, I think somebody I was, I think Dan uh, Simmons and uh, one of the other Telegram. Uh, groups I'm in. It could have been his, his own uh, group there in uh, Linux user space. But in any case, he had sent me this link too. And I did see this link when I was searching for solutions, but what threw me off in the preview when you're looking at the search results in, in, the, uh, in the browser is it mentioned, let's encrypt 
easy let, let's <laughs> encrypt and it's like i'm not exposing this to the internet i don't need a let's encrypt certificate so i didn't click on the link and then once biko pointed this out i went back to it and there is a section that says oh if you don't want let's encrypt you just say no in the script so i'm just thinking the seo needs to be a little updated for this to say it's not just let's encrypt because the actual i'm not going to read the entire url but it basically says installation scripts or unify easy update script or unify let's encrypt or and it's like it was just confusing because i didn't really read that much into it because words <laughs> when you're frustrated and you're trying to find a solution you're not trying to parse you know grammar right Okay, well, let's give Tony a break and wrap this show up. <laughs> Announcements. For chatting with us further, you may choose to join our Telegram group or our Discord channel. Dale, where can we find you? I'm at Dale underscore CDL on Telegram and Discord, and my email is Dale underscore at PM dot me. Eric? You can hear more of me on Mintcast, Linux OTC, Linux Saloon, and Linux Lunkcast. I also have a YouTube channel at EricAdamsYT. I can be reached on most social media and chat platforms under my full name, Eric Adams, such as Mastodon, Discord, Telegram, and Matrix. I have links for all of those in the show notes, and you can also reach me at my email address, eaonlinux at proton.me. Moss? And you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News. My email is bardmoss at pm.me, and I'm on Mastodon as at zyvala at hosttux.social. Plus, you can find me, Dale, and Dylan at itsmoss.com. I will not give out my YouTube channel because it's just me singing. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, we would like to thank all those people who make this project possible. Archive.org for storing and helping to distribute this program. Audacity, which we use for recording and editing the show. Tony Hughes for managing the website and producing and editing the podcast. Joshua Lowe for our work on our logo. All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode. Mid-Air Machine creators of the song Streets of Santivo. Uses our music under Creative Commons license. Thanks to Linus Torvalds for the kernel, Richard Stallman for the GNU toolkits, and all those who have worked behind the scenes on free and open source and Libre software. We'll be back next month. Thank all of you for listening. <laughs>